Hi there, I'm Mickey Johnson, and you're listening to Leading by Example, a podcast where we'll explore how work shapes who we are, personally, interpersonally, and emotionally, in conversations with leaders about the ways they've evolved and the relationships that have driven those changes. In this episode, I sat down with Sandra Daniels, a co-founder at Thumbtack. If you're not familiar with Thumbtack, it's a business that matches customers with local professionals to help them build satisfying, sustainable businesses. It's a unicorn startup that has raised more than $400 million from Sequoia Capital and other top VC firms. And in the 12 years since Thumbtack was founded, Sander served as the first customer service agent for building out the team, then led much of Thumbtack's early digital marketing, which was central to the company's strategy and success. For the past few years, he's focused on all things people, building the company's culture, values, and team at scale. I met Sander when we were doing some work with Thumbtack, and I liked everyone that I met at the company, but I felt a special kinship with him. I remember being impressed that in one of our first meetings, he told us about the 360 reviews that he and his fellow leaders made public to the whole company. He talked really openly about his weaknesses um, that had been surfaced during the assessment, and he encouraged me, along with his team, to help him avoid his common pitfalls. I mean, if that isn't leading by example, I, I don't know what it is. I also really appreciate that Sander values coaching, and he's relied on several different coaches over the years. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on my coaching certification, so it's personally interesting, but I also just wish more leaders would talk openly about the coaching that they've received and the way it's shaped them. As you'll see, Sander's really happy to discuss the role coaching has played in shaping his leadership style. And, you know, hearing that your greatest strength, which is really at the core of how you understand yourself, is also your greatest weakness is not easy. There's a lot of leaders who would have refused to take that feedback and plowed on without changing course, but not Sander, as you'll learn from our conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Sander. Welcome to the Leading by Example podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, Mickey, thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, me too. So first up, uh, so that maybe people can get to know you a little bit through the eyes of the people that you lead, how do you think that uh, you know your team or the people that you lead would describe you as a leader? <laughs> well, when I first started at Thumbtack, gosh, more than 10 years ago now, I didn't have much structure for thinking about leadership. I was new to the game. I was new in my career. I just graduated from school. I didn't really know much about uh, the types of leaders. I didn't know much about myself at all, really. Uh, but one of the most wonderful parts of having been at Thumbtack for the last 11, 12 years and growing the team has been getting to watch other leaders and how they operate, learning about leadership, and also getting to know myself. So, you know, 12 years ago, had you asked me, how do people see you as a leader? I, I wouldn't have had any idea, really. Maybe I would have thr thrown out some random adjectives about how I thought of myself turns out how I think about myself has oftentimes little to do with how people perceive me as a leader. Uh -huh. um, so 
I now have a framework that I learned from one of our executive coaches that I oftentimes go back to when thinking about leadership. And this coach, when we worked with them, they said, okay, there's at a high level, three types of leaders. The first we'll call a visionary evangelist. This type of person is able to stand up in front of a room and clearly communicate an inspiring vision to a large group of people. They are always looking at the long-term horizon. The second type of leader they called a relationship builder. These people lead through relationships. They get very vulnerable with their teammates. They get to know them well. People follow them because of the type of person they are and the relationship they form with that person. And then the third type of leader they called a manager of execution. So maybe this person isn't the greatest visionary in the world. Maybe they're not the greatest relationship builder in the world. But holy cow, if you give them a target and a team, they will drive that team against that target and hit it every single time. So uh, through uh, an assessment that I'm happy to dig a little bit more into and through feedback I've gotten over the years, I've learned that at least along those dimensions, I am uh, relatively low on visionary evangelism. So I'm not a natural salesperson. I can communicate to groups, but it's not my natural place. I am very high and above average on relationship building. So people uh, say they work with me because I am high on empathy. I love getting to know them and who they are and what makes them tick. I love learning about people's career goals and motivating them and enabling them in that direction. And then managing execution. I'm an okay manager of execution. I'm about average. So on the one hand, I'm a world-class individual executor. But on the other hand, I'm too nice and optimistic to hold people to account in a way that truly drives way, way outperforming on, on accountability. So you asked me how people perceive me as a leader, and that's, that's kind of how I think about it today along those three dimensions. Hmm, that's super interesting. Um, I love that framework. So I'm glad that you brought up this sort of, you know, executive rubric or whatever that you were, you know, judged against leadership rubric. And I know that that was part of some executive coaching that you all had, right? All three of you, um, if I understand. And so I want to dig into that because it sounds really interesting. So tell me a little bit about how did that come about <laughs> that, hmm. you know, that coaching program and what did you, what was your reaction when it was first suggested? And then what was sort of your experience of that process? Yeah. So there uh, were three of us founders at Thumbtack when we went through the Series A, Series B, Series C growth stage rounds in uh, the early days. For the first one, two, three years of Thumbtack's life, we didn't really know much of what we were doing. We were kind of wandering in the wilderness, just trying to, to barely figure things out and get to the next stage. Things started taking a little bit more structure, though, after four or five years. And, you know, as we started getting some success, our, our Series C investors came to us and they said, well, uh, founders, congratulations. Now it's time to grow up. And for us, that meant a couple things. One was going out and hiring 
an exec team uh, uh, leaders for all of the departments across our team. We did that. And then the second thing was hiring executive coaches. So we talked to a handful of exec coaches. Um, there are different types of coaches, which I'm also happy to talk about. Um, but we eventually landed on uh, a coach, Rich Hagberg and Laurent Valasek. Um, we're still close with them many years later. And they had a very, they brought a very um, analytical framework to executive and leadership coaching. They said, okay, we have this, this leadership framework that I, that I just mentioned. We have a 125 question survey. The survey asks questions all about how you operate. Now, please give us a list of the eight, 10, 12 people in the world who are closest to you, both personally and professionally, and we're gonna administer this survey to them. So they did that. I gave them the list, they administered the survey, they got some responses back, they had data, and I will never forget when they brought me into a room and if I were previously under any illusions about what I was good and not good at, well, then they were entirely shattered during that session. So for me, they, they did two things. First, it was an individual assessment. And second, it was like a team building and team assessment, particularly among the founders. So on the personal assessment, they said, Sander, there are so many great things that the team really likes about working with you. You're positive, you're extremely optimistic, you are a great executor, you're a culture carrier in many ways, and the team loves working with you. But what we have found in our assessment is that just like 98% of people, your greatest strength is also your greatest weakness. So you are extremely optimistic, but the language you are using to communicate is extremely exaggerated. So for you, everything is the best in the world or the greatest thing you've ever seen or sometimes the dumbest idea you've ever heard. And the language that you use has completely undercut everybody's judgment in you and nobody trusts what you say anymore. Uh, so that hit me like a ton of bricks. Uh, here I was operating in the office as if this uh, personality trait, this character trait I had was the best thing about me. It's something that I had built so many friendships on and relationships on. And I learn that it's great, but it's also the thing most holding you back. So I went on a 12 or 18 month journey, basically, that was pretty difficult, where I kind of really hunkered down and went into silent mode for quite a while while I basically reprogrammed a lot of how I uh, communicate in the office to eliminate exaggerations almost entirely and superlatives and move to a much more reasonable way of communicating with people. Now, deep down, I'm still the optimistic, fun, happy person I always was, but the feedback I've gotten is over the last many years uh, people who who meet me are are su very surprised to hear that I was ever that way because I communicate now much more moderately. <laughs> so I think the greater lesson is it is extremely hard to get fair and clear feedback about your strengths and weaknesses. Um, and you should do anything you can to get that feedback because, 
there, there is almost certainly something you're not hearing or something that people aren't telling you that's holding you back. Thank you for that story. Um, I'd love to dig into this sort of, uh, I was just thinking of it as like a silent retreat almost that you went on, right? But this sort of, it sounds like you kind of like went inward and were like, okay, how do I, I'm going to go to quiet, right? And then how do I like bring back my voice in a way that like works better for people? Um especially just the first couple of days and weeks after you got that feedback, how was that for you to get that feedback and suddenly have this huge shift in how you thought people were perceiving you? Sure. It was hard. It was dejecting. I, you know, I, I, I questioned my entire worth at the organization and the company. Is this something I'll ever be able to recover from? Is this, uh, too much a part of my core personality that I can't change it. And I'm just destined for, you know, maybe not failure, but a ceiling forever. So there was a period almost of just like, uh, not, not like grieving, but just like, wow, what just hit me? What, what does this mean? Uh, I'm ha- like on Myers-Briggs, I'm like half introvert, half extrovert. And so I can be extrovert, but I can also go introvert, very happily, very quickly. So I just went into like introvert processing mode um, and observation mode. And I said, uh, okay, I've heard this feedback. Now let me learn. So let me find the people that I'm working with at the company who are really respected because of how they communicate or because of their leadership style. What, What are the common things? How are they communicating? What are the keywords that they're using? Um, how do they influence people in team meetings when do they speak are they the first ones to speak or do they hold their time to speak until later do they speak in the meeting do they speak privately outside of the meeting what do they communicate in the meeting what do they communicate outside of the meeting it was kind of those details and nuances that i really observed for the following six, nine, 12 months. It was things I hadn't even considered. It was things like the the language that the most trusted leaders at Thumbtack have used over time includes words like it. When I hear this, it seems like that, or one thing I'm seeing is this thing that you're seeing as well. But another small thing I sometimes observe is this other thing that's a point I want to make. It's basically like moderated group, other focused language versus kind of like an immediate me, me, me. Here's what I think. Here's why I think what you're saying isn't right. It's a very consensus driven group building type of language. And so, you know, I kind of have, I have a lot of liberal arts side to my mind, but I also have an engineering side to my mind. So some of the ways I processed it went in an engineering direction and that like, okay, these are the types of words and the language and the cadence at which people speak that I'm going to learn from. So That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I was just thinking about also, I know you have a background in law and I just feel like you can see that really like analytical part of yourself um, that's very systematic, but I love that it's being applied to this thing that's very human and like relational. 
I'm curious too. So as you started to test out, I'm imagining and like deploy, right? Some of these things that you were learning and sort of like shift the conversation. How did people start to respond to you differently if they did? Or what was the feedback you got, I guess, as you started to shift? Well, you know, it's one of those things where you very quickly realize that like many things in life, you think about you a lot more than other people think about you. So after I kind of went quiet for six or nine months and and started regaining my voice, they were barely even noticing that I uh, wasn't speaking up much in meetings. There were new people at the company, so didn't know that prior me, you know, so it turned out to be uh, people were people were very receptive and gave me very positive feedback. The, my, the founders and the people who knew me best, they knew I was kind of going along this journey and I enrolled them uh, as partners in helping me grow in the journey and they were super supportive and collaborative. So if there were times in, in meetings or one-on-ones or whatever where they felt I was speaking in superlatives again, they kind of flagged it in a gentle way. And I said, okay, thanks. Uh, and then also if they saw that I was speaking much more uh, in the way a, a leader should speak, then they also said, hey, that was, that was, that was great. Um, high five. So people were receptive. Um, and so it was great to see that, that uh, it helped to get that, that feedback along the way. And what was the response for you more internally? Like, I, I'm really interested in this idea of you know, as leaders, if we're lucky, we get this feedback and we have the opportunity to say all those things that you said to yourself, right? Which is like, is this just who I am? Can I change this without becoming a different person? Did it feel like some kind of betrayal? Did it feel like you were just becoming who you needed to become? You know, what was your internal response to starting to shift and like see that people responded differently to it? Oh, there were all kinds of thoughts like that. In some way, it was an identity crisis. I had built a lot of my identity around this. You know, is it worth uh, changing my personality in this way if I'm losing so much of what I previously valued about myself? And it turns out I was overvaluing that, that quirk. And turns out that by hearing that feedback about that quirk and changing for what the universe thought was better, whether I liked it or not, improved my relationships. It improved my relationships first at work among the people I managed, among my founders. It also improved my marriage. So many of the tips and tricks that we founders at Thumbtack have used to build and maintain our relationship over time, we've all brought home to our spouses. So it's absolutely helped me at home as well. And yeah, I mean, are there things about uh, the way I used to operate that I loved? Yes, but my life is richer today on balance um, than it was previously because the world receives me a little bit better than it did before, I think. One thing I'd love to dig into more too is you mentioned that part of the assessment was also more of a team assessment of kind of how you guys interact together. Um, And that's something I've always been fascinated about. And so I'm just curious if there were any 
big insights from that that you feel like you've really carried forward? Yeah, so they, you know, they say that some enormously high percentage of early stage startups don't quite make it through the gauntlet in significant part because of founder relationships gone awry. And oh my gosh, after a decade plus of working with Marco and Jonathan, the other founders, you can see why. There's so much crap that happens at the company all the time. You're all pushed and pulled in a million different directions. There's there's uh, different directions for you personally. There's different directions for the team. You're all changing significantly over the course of time. So the people we were 11 years ago are not the people we are today. And so you can just see how it all kind of can pretty easily break down over the course of time. All that said, I I could not feel more lucky and blessed by the two friends that I've gotten to be on this journey with. We are still great friends. 11, 12 years later, we all still talk almost every day. I think half of that is is luck and it's it uh, our personalities kind of lend ourselves to that. Um, another part of it is deliberate. We all have a very long-term outlook on the business. We've said from the beginning, okay, how do we build this to withstand and endure over decades? So when you have a, a multi-decade outlook on something, you can let the daily or the weekly or the monthly or even the annual annoyance slide a little bit more easily. Um, And then we've also been really rigorous about coaching over the course of time and particularly about assessing our strengths and weaknesses. So to your question, the most important thing that coaching did for us, I would say is in an objective third party way, help us identify our strengths and weaknesses, and even acknowledge with each other in a vulnerable group setting that we have strengths and we have weaknesses and they are different. And not all of us needs to be everything to the team. And we can all have different roles and play different parts on the team that are equally valuable, but uh, are different. And so, you know, in the early days, Maybe we all wanted to be the ones who were like in front of the company all the time, motivating people and communicating the latest message. Maybe we all wanted to be the ones pitching the company to investors. But when we did that assessment, it was clear to me that, you know, Marco, for example, has a very particular great strength around communicating to a team, pitching and selling an idea being an inspiring communicator. And me, on the other hand, like I can do that stuff, but it's that's a a super strength of his that no matter how hard I work on it, I probably won't be able to match. Um, So, okay, Marco, like you do that thing that you're great at. Meanwhile, I'm going to build us new systems and processes. I'm going to be the one who builds a lot of our operations from zero to one. I thrive on taking an idea and organizing it and building against it and executing against it. So uh, a handful of, you know, Thumbtack's quote unquote greatest hits came from um, us as a team coming up with an idea and then saying, okay, Sandra, go, go build it, test it, and then scale it from zero to one if it's working. And so I took on that role. And it's a role that 
maybe day one, I wouldn't have been comfortable with, but like day 1500 after five years, I was super comfortable with and thrived in and ended up loving. So that I would say is how uh, group coaching helped help the founders kind of endure over the course of time. Yeah, I think that's so insightful. Um, and that certainly resonates with my experience too. You know, it's mostly just Jackson and I at least was for the first couple of years that I remember having those sort of, you know, not quite arguments, but where, you know, he's very like you, like he's very good at figuring out the next thing that needs to happen and like getting it done and figuring out how to scale it and get other, you know, bring other people in and train them and sort of hand it off. Um, and he's just constantly thinking about what's the next thing to, to get us to where we need to go. Um, and I'm highly relational, right? Like I'm a big mm-hmm. relationship builder. And I tend to be more where I'm sort of, I would call it like following the energy. Like I'm more like, well, I'm hearing this and I'm hearing this. So like, maybe we need to go this direction, right? So I'm pretty good at like the day-to-day, like keeping us on track. But if I have to constantly be thinking about 10 years down the road, like that's a lot harder for me. And there was this, I think just, you know, resentment that would bubble up of like, Mm -hmm. he was mad that I wasn't looking far ahead. And I was kind of mad that he couldn't respond to an email in less than five days. Right. (laughs) Um, And at some point I remember just having a conversation that was like, oh, okay, you're good at this. You're in charge of this. Jackson is (laughs) R&D. That's your realm. I'm going to let it go. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And like, you recognize that it's a real strength that I can like keep up relationships on a day to day basis and like make things happen in the one week to, you know, six months realm. So Mm -hmm. that that really resonates. Yeah. Uh, Early on in my career, right after we had just started Thumbtack, I remember I had a very black and white approach to what quote unquote good and not good was in a partner or a colleague at work. Um, And turns out that that view of what good and not good was, was a mere reflection of what I was good and not good at. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm an organizer. I'm a builder. I'm kind of a classic engineer lawyer. So my, I, I try to get to inbox zero every day. I'm hyper diligent. I can work really long hours. I can write very clearly. And so if somebody, for example, on the team wasn't a super clear writer, then I immediately discounted their entire contribution to the team. And I thought like, oh my gosh, this person's just like, quote unquote, not good. Um, Turns out that was a huge mistake and turns out we all have different strengths. Uh, while I'm a very clear writer, for example, other people on the team could be world-class organizational thinkers or world-class independent contributors in their art form, design or PM or analytics or engineering or whatever it is. Um, and just because they can't do this narrow thing that I happen to be really good at has very, very little bearing on whether they're making a great contribution or not to the company. So going through coaching kind of got me out of my own personal bubble and it uh, helped me mature in that way to really make me realize that we truly all have different strengths and those strengths do truly contribute very different and very wonderful things to the organization. Yeah, agreed. I definitely see that as one of the biggest shifts that I and any leaders I know go through is that shift from the way I am is the good way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And anybody who can't do that, 
is somehow, even subconsciously we do it, right? Even if we're like, oh yeah, diversity, we need all the people, but you're still like dinging people, right? When they can't write an email. Um, But yeah, to really get out of that and really see like what people contribute from a totally different angle than you do, um, I think it's it's hard. Um, Was there something that specifically helped you see that and like recognize that you were doing that first and then also the value those people brought? I think the thing that really made me realize it is that process I described where I was really, truly like crushed and made deeply vulnerable. It was this entire mindset shift where it hadn't even crossed my mind that there were like entire dimensions of collaboration or teamwork or operating the company that I was just totally falling flat on my face on. It took that going through that process and being brought truly low to kind of then think, okay, what else am I missing out there? Like there, if, if I didn't see this, which seems so obvious to everybody I was working with, what else am I missing out there? I'm sure there's a million things that I'm missing. And so I'm going to approach all further relationships from an attitude of humility and like, you're good at at something that I'm not good at. And I want to learn from you versus whatever prior approach I was taking. Awesome. It's like, in order to be a leader, you you have to have sort of a healthy sense of your own ego, right? Like you have to think that you're good at things, I think, or you wouldn't want to take on leadership in the first place. And so it's almost like we have to get kind of broken down to go to the next level um, to a certain degree. Yeah, the trick is maintaining con- self-confidence through, through it, um, at least for the long term. Because obviously self-confidence and believing you're good at something and believing in yourself is such a critical part of leading and building. It's a very fine balance to strike in a leader between being vulnerable and understanding your limitations on the one hand, while also being assertive and confident and outspoken at the right times and standing for what you believe in. So, Is there something that helps you keep that equilibrium? I don't think there's anything special that helps me keep that special that sense of equilibrium. You know, I had high self-confidence beforehand. Uh, so maybe that process helped me bring it down a little bit. I'm, I'm always going to be an optimistic, confident person, I think. One of the ways I, I help myself do that is uh, stay healthy. I read self-help books. So just kind of the basics of what you hear about. The times I get most down are the times I'm being least healthy personally, getting the least sleep, not exercising how I should. I believe a lot in balance across the different parts of life and that we are multidimensional beings and some of our dimensions can get out of whack at certain times, but if they're out of whack for too long, then it'll start seeping into the rest of your life. I think one whole people can sometimes get drawn into is to make one dimension of their life too core to their personality and their identity. Um, And for a lot of people that can be work. Um, And listen, if your thing is like all work all the time or all family all the time or all, you know, Game of Thrones all the time or whatever it is, like, great, that's your thing and it works for you. But I think for most people, 
Um, that's not how it works. And we all need multiple dimensions. So one thing that has long helped me, Marco and Jonathan at Thumbtack is having a life outside of Thumbtack. Uh, from the very early days, Thumbtack was a core part of who we were and we worked hard at it and we worked, you know, the classic 14 hours a day, six days a week for three or four years, particularly at the beginning and still obviously work very hard on it today. But we all had lives outside of Thumbtack. We all had relationships with people, with our spouses or our to-be spouses, and also with friends. We got out and were deliberate about spending time with people, with non-Thumbtack people in the early days. And that really helped us keep balance. You know, there are going to be good times and not good times at work. There are going to be good times and not good times at home. Um, and if you can try even during the craziest periods of your life to do some basic nurturing of, you know, each of those three or four pillars, work, family, friends, and health, then I think that really helps you weather the, the, the tough times. At least it does for me because, you know, there have been not just weeks, but months and even years at Thumbtack that have been really, really hard. And having a, a close network of family and friends to kind of lean back on during those times and even help me check out of work for a while and go to has been enormously helpful. And I think, you know, people can get into trouble a little bit when work is their only thing. And they base their self-worth on how much money they're making or whether they're getting the promotion. It raises the stakes just too much at work. It makes conversations way too hard you start optimizing for the wrong things. And I think ultimately it does a disservice to not just you and your mental health over time, but, but all parts of your, your life. I super appreciate that because I think there is kind of a mythos in the Bay area startup scene, especially around founders needing to dedicate all of their time and energy and life force to their company. And if they don't do that, that they're somehow not committed or they don't have enough skin in the game. And, you know, what I have always heard from you guys and I continue to hear on this con in this conversation is you're building something that you want to last a really long time and you actually are running the marathon, not the sprint. I think it's funny how much we talk about that in the Valley, but then if you look how people actually work, <laughs> like they're just hmm. a sprint nonstop, right? Um, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of space given to the rest and recover part of training. Well, we've talked about, you know, some of the more difficult feedback that you got from coaching and how you strengthened that weakness. But I also want to talk about the strength, you know, around building relationships, which is very obvious that that's something that's important to you and you're good at. How have you, you know, continued to build on that strength in your uh, time as a leader? Well, <clears throat> I love getting to know people. I love um, learning about people in a deep way. I love doing anything I can to help those around me 
thrive and be able to bring their best selves to work and be able to bring their whole selves to work and help them be on a, a journey of personal and professional discovery because I've seen that that is one of the most powerful things that I've ever been through. So I want the same for them. So we have focused very heavily at Thumbtack on building the systems and processes that allow people to thrive, that allow them to be in a safe space where they can bring their whole selves to work and they can take risks. And if they succeed, big high five. And if they stumble, then we talk about uh, what happened and we work together as a group to kind of like lift them up and give them a, a second or a third shot or whatever it takes. In the early days, I would say my focus was more on like one-on-one relationship building. As the organization got bigger, it became much more of like a systems and, and process challenge. And so today, over the last many years, my focus and our people team's focus has been heavily on building the systems and processes that ensure fairness at the company, that ensure a high sense of inclusion. And it's it's those things that I now bring my relationship building to bear on. So I love that you talked about the personal growth that you hope people at Thumbtack experience because you've experienced it yourself. And I'm just wondering, is there a moment as a leader that when you think about it, that kind of just makes your you know, your chest swell up and like puts a smile on your face when you think about it of like, oh, like we we did something right here or I did something right here. Um, there are so many cases of people who came to us at a certain point in their career, usually an early point in their career, and they didn't know what Thumbtack was. They had heard random good things from maybe a friend who referred them in, but they didn't really know what they were getting. And then they came in and over the course of months and years, they said, wow, my initial impression was right. And it's gotten even better over the course of time. And the things that make me most proud are when that culture has allowed them to grow and thrive. And so you We've watched them over the course of time at Thumbtack start from a relatively junior position and then get promoted over the course of three or four or five or six years internally at the company and have a bigger and bigger impact over the course of time. Or as much as it pains me to say it, you know, they they go to another company and because of the training they got at Thumbtack and the culture we built, they, they accelerated their career and they were able to go have huge impact elsewhere. It's really watching people grow from rough cut diamonds to these wonderful pillars in their communities or leaders in their organizations is what's brought me great joy. And, you know, now, now that we're 11, 12 years in, there's a huge generation of dozens, hundreds of uh, people out there in San, in the San Francisco Bay Area, in the Salt Lake area, and in the Philippines, who are now, you know, they're 10, 15 years into their career, and the formative part of their career was at Thumbtack. And they look back on their time at Thumbtack as 
the best part of their whole career. And there's very little that brings me greater joy than, than that. That's so awesome. I mean, that makes me a little emotional just to hear. <laughs> That's what I love about leadership too. Cool. My last question is just, do, do you have a question for me? I feel like I spend all this time grilling you. Um, it's only fair to <laughs> give you, give you a shot if you want one. Uh, I have Mickey, I have so many questions for you. I guess one of the things I am very often curious about is what the world is like outside of Thumbtack. I've lived in one world my whole career, and I think it's been a wonderful case study on many lessons, but I also realize I have blinders on. So I guess I want to flip the question back on you. You you talk to so many different leaders, and what are those kind of defining moments or those transition points that you watch people go through when they transition from a good leader to a great leader or or have a particular breakthrough moment when they seem to go from lesser influence on a team to greater influence? Yeah, I mean, great question. I, of course, only have my own small perspective, even though I have gotten to talk to a lot of great leaders. I'm still, I'm on the early part of my journey of talking to them about leadership, (laughs) but I certainly glean a lot. I think for sure that the process you described of whether you choose it or it's sort of suggested to you strongly, but to get some kind of truly objective outside perspective is the first part of it. And then really just can you hear that feedback? I mean, we could have spent an hour just talking about that internal process, I feel like, because maybe this is just me, but I think it's hard when you hear that you're doing something that feels deeply part of who you are, that is actually making you less effective and is potentially hurting, right? The people that you're leading in some way. And I think a lot of people don't make it through that crisis of ego and self-understanding. I think a lot of people think not worth it, right? Like if I change, what will I Mm -hmm. have to fall back on? There's nothing left. Who will I be? You know, I won't know myself anymore. I don't want to be a leader if I don't know myself anymore. And they kind of just put it away. Um, And the other thing that I'm just really, you know, I think that's such a crucible moment. And I'm really interested in digging into it with people, especially because looking at startup founders, there's so often this moment where I think you're asked to grow up, like you said, you have the great idea, you have the passion, you have the will, you do it. And then I think that's an incredibly common experience where essentially, if you're lucky, you have good VCs that come to you and they say, okay, guys, Mm -hmm. like you did a good thing. And like, what got you here is not going to get you there. And a lot of people who can't make that transition, I think are the ones who sort of get their companies, quote unquote, taken away from them, right? 
and, mm-hmm. and you get the professional CEO brought in or you get the adult in the room kind of situation. And like, I think that there are founder leaders and that's the fun part for them. And they don't necessarily want to run the company for 15 years. But if you want to be there and you can't because you can't get over your own ego enough to like become the leader your company needs, that's just like deeply sad to me. <laughs> so I, I hope that if, I can talk to people who have made that transition successfully and like the benefits that they get from it, um, that it will encourage more people that it's worth the the pain <laughs> um, of, of going through that like self-examination period. I think you put it extremely well. The transition is so hard. It goes to your core. It strikes at your ego more deeply than almost anything else can strike. And so many people do not get out of the valley, but I'm with you. I think ultimately the journey as hard as it is, is worth it. Um, But man, is it hard? Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much uh, for being on the Leading by Example podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mickey. Yeah. I've long admired everything you've been involved in and have built. So kudos and thanks a million. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it.